Well, we're called, as a people, we're called to evangelize, right? To make, other, or to make Jesus known to other people. We're called to do that. But we think that it's a pretty hard task. And we think it's a pretty hard task because we worry that if we don't do everything right, or don't say everything just right, that we might get rejected, or that Jesus might get rejected. Isn't that right? Did you guys feel that way? If I don't say this just right, if I don't do everything just right, I could get rejected, or Jesus could get rejected. Almost as if we believe that if we said everything just right, then people would love Jesus. If we could just get it all right, say it all right, do it all right, then everyone would love Jesus. It seems so hard to do, though, because I know that I foul things up. You guys foul things up when you do this? You know, I know I do. I'm going to foul it up. I know I'm going to. It's like not even, it's not even an option whether I'm going to foul it up. It's just how I'm going to foul it up. And at what point I'm going to foul it up. Is anybody else there? Just me. And when I foul it up, I'm concerned that people may reject me. Or even worse, that they may reject Jesus. So let me comfort you. You ready? Here's your comfort. And you're not going to feel like it's very comforting, but, but it is. Here's your comfort. Perhaps we should be more concerned, more concerned that Jesus will be rejected or that we will be rejected if we actually say everything right. Did you hear that? In other words, flip it on the head. We're concerned that perhaps we or Jesus will be rejected if we don't say everything right or do everything right. Perhaps we should be more concerned that we'll be rejected or Jesus will be rejected if we do say everything right. Does that comfort you at all? The reason it should is because the point is you can't really screw this thing up in the sense that you can't change anyone's heart. You can't make anyone love Jesus, whether you do it right or especially not if you do it wrong, right? Getting it right doesn't mean that people will embrace Jesus and love him. It doesn't mean that. In fact, often it's just the opposite. Think about this. Jesus was perfect, wasn't he? He never sinned. He always knew just what to say. He knew a proper and wise word in every instance, didn't he? He knew how to act properly among all people. He knew how to perfectly love God and love his neighbor. He never sinned. He never fouled up the gospel. Never. Never. Yet what happened to him? The world despised him and killed him. And we seem to expect a response that's different. We seem to think that if we can just do everything right and say everything right, then we're going to get a different result than he got. What makes us think we can be any different? Here's the point. I want you to hear this. We need to share the gospel with boldness and grace. And we need to leave the results of that to God. We need to stop trying to control the outcome. We can't. We need to stop worrying about the outcome because it's not something we can control. See, we worry about things that somehow we think we can get under our control, don't we? 
Stop worrying about it. Because you can't control the outcome. Stop worrying. You might foul up explaining the gospel and just start telling people about Jesus because you can't control the outcome. I have had situations in which I have developed or delivered to somebody what I consider the most eloquent appeal to the gospel that I've ever delivered, and they look at me like, you are a complete idiot, right? And then I've had other instances where I'm like, well, I love Jesus. He's good. He saved me, and, and I don't really know what else to tell you. Jesus is good. Oh, and they start wanting to repent and believe. Like, what the what? Right? I, I used to make the joke that uh, a pastor I worked with, that he, he, he had this incredible gift of evangelism for whatever reason. I would sit and tell someone about the gospel and tell them about the gospel, and I would give them all the details and answer all their objections and explain every question they could possibly have, and that was my thing. And then, then he would stand up in front of them and say, you know, Jesus is really good. You should believe in him. And they'd be like crying and repenting. Oh, I should. I'm like, what is going on there? I can't control the outcome. You can't control the outcome. Stop worrying about it. Just tell people about Jesus. They may reject him anyway, and you. In fact, if you get it clear and right, they may be more likely to reject him and you. Just start praying for people who are unbelievers. Start striving to live godly among others. Start sharing the grace of God in Christ with others. The, re- the reason I bring this up is because we're going to see in the text, in Luke 4, that Jesus was rejected for preaching the gospel clearly. Did you hear that? He was rejected for preaching the gospel clearly, and he was rejected by the people in his own hometown. He did it all right. He said everything just right, and he was still rejected by the people he grew up around. They tried to kill him. His own neighbors and friends that he grew up with all his life, they tried to kill him for preaching the gospel accurately, for pointing to himself. Because see, when Jesus is presented clearly to people, many of them will reject him. And so as we look at the story, here's what I want to do. I want to break it into three parts. Okay, so here are the parts. It's just like any kind of story. I want to, I want to talk about the setting. I want to set the scene. Here's what was happening. Here's what Jesus was doing. Then I want to look at the problem, and I'm just going to sort of wrap the climax up into the problem, okay? So there's a problem, and there's a climax of the problem, and then what I want to do is look at the resolution. Those are the three parts. The setting the scene, okay, the problem with the climax in there, and then the resolution. Those are the three parts. So let's look first at the scene. And we looked at this somewhat, um, the setting of this scene. We looked at it somewhat last week, and if you want more detail on it than I'm going to give you today, then listen to last week's sermon. But look there, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Notice he had gone out to to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. That's the northern area of Israel where he's from. And a report went out about him through all the surrounding country. Notice his fame and popularity is growing. And he taught in their synagogues in all the area of Galilee, and he was being glorified by all. Everyone was saying, what a great teacher this guy is. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. This is Jesus' hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. In other words, Jesus regularly went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. 
He went to church every week. Jesus did, right? Just, just let that sink in. <laughs> Jesus went to church every week, okay? Church every week, and he stood up to read, which is the common thing. Whenever you're going to read from the Word of God, you're going to stand up to read it out of respect for the Word. So he stands up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Here's what happened in those synagogue services. They would have a reading from the law, and they would have a reading from the prophets, then they would do the Hebrew Shema, and they would bless the people, etc. So Jesus is standing up during the portion we're having the reading from the prophets. So they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, which is a scroll. It's not a book where he can flip to the page with a chapter and verse marker. Okay, It's a big, long scroll, written in Hebrew. No chapter markers, no verse markers. In fact, the way Hebrew language works, there's not even spaces between the words. Okay, And he finds the place. So Jesus is very familiar with the Word of God. He finds the place where he's supposed to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. He rolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, the Spirit of the Lord came upon me because he has anointed me. I'm the Messiah. That he's reading that, he's going to apply it to himself. To say, I'm the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord came upon me at my baptism. When I was baptized, you saw the Spirit descend as a dove, and I was anointed as the Messiah. He's come upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to tell the poor, both physically and spiritually poor, the good news. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. What are those? They're cap- these are people who are captive to sin. They're taking the prisoners of war with sin. He sent me to tell them that I'm going to free you. I've got good news for you if you're poor. I've got good news for you if you're captive to sin. And recovery of sight to the blind, both the physical and spiritually blind. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ. So I'm going to give you sight. I've come to set at liberty those who are oppressed, those who are broken, bruised, pushed down. I've come to, to, to liberate them. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what I've come to do. Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor is picking up from this idea of the year of Jubilee. Happened every 50 years in Israel's calendar. Every 50 years they'd have the year of Jubilee. There was a trumpet that was blown at the beginning of the year of Jubilee. And on that day when that trumpet was blown, the slaves were all set free. Everyone who had debts, all their debts were forgiven. Everything was set right. And what Jesus is saying is, I've come to proclaim that day. When you hear me preach, the trumpet is being blown and the year of the eternal jubilee where everything is set right has begun. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. He sat down because that's the way Jewish guys taught. They would sit down to teach. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Mind you, these are his family and friends. He's just read this passage to them. Okay? He's read it to them. And they're all fixed on him. What's he going to say? They've heard that he's done miracles. They've heard that he's a great teacher. And what's he going to say now? And he began to say to them, verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hear that? Today this scripture 
has been fulfilled in your hearing. They knew suddenly that Jesus was saying something that was marvelous. Jesus is saying that Isaiah 61, the promise of the Messiah who's coming to set us free from our sins, to bring us forgiveness, to, ke- to take us away from captivity to sin, that day has come, the day of the year of the Lord's favor when all things that are wrong will be set right. That day has come. That's awesome to hear. It's been fulfilled in your hearing. And what Jesus is saying is, as I speak this, it's being fulfilled because I'm the one who Isaiah is talking about. And if you want more on that message, then look, listen to last week's sermon. It's online. You can listen to it. But what I want to do is, for the purpose of today's sermon, I want to move on to the problem. How do people respond? What's the problem? Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? See, this is a hometown boy who's clearly made good, right? He's made good as a speaker. He's made good as some sort of um, minister. He's a hometown boy. He's made good. He's like the star athlete that comes home and everybody starts celebrating him, right? Or the guy who made it big in business or suddenly became some kind of great leader. And the neighbors are all marveling. They're all sort of stunned. You know what that's like, right? You ever seen anybody who you didn't expect to make good and they went out and made good and you're going, wow. They're all marveling. They're astonished. But that's as far as it goes because they have some doubts. And you can hear their doubts and their question. What's their question? Isn't this Joseph's son? See, Jesus knows where this is going. He knows that the people are having difficulty seeing that this could be true. That this scripture could be fulfilled in their presence. In other words, they, they kind of like what he said. They're like, wow, that sounds, sounds really nice. That gospel message, that sounds really good. I like the way that sounds. But Jesus? Really him? He's it? He's Joseph's son, isn't he? You know, how could he be the Messiah? I mean, I could see how he's clearly a good teacher. I I mean, we hear good things about him. But the Messiah? Isn't that taking it a bit far? You know, as an aside, it's, it's not abnormal for us to do this to young people, is it? Just as an aside, we we sort of do this. We sort of pigeonhole young people into a particular role and identity and assume we know them. And then when they grow up, we still see them the way that we used to see them. And so we think we know them, but we never really do know them, do we? Well, the same kind of thing is happening here. And Jesus knew it was happening. He knew it. He knew they didn't really want him, and they weren't really going to look to him as their Savior. They didn't really think they needed the salvation that Jesus was even offering. Because they didn't see themselves as the people that Isaiah was describing. Verse 23, and he said to them, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote, quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. Okay, I want you to think of this. This is a proverb we don't use. We don't use the proverb, physician, heal yourself. What does that mean? Here's the thing. In the first century, medicine was not that reliable. Okay? 
some cases, it's still not tremendously reliable, right? But in the first century, it was, you, you know, you just go back 2,000 years and think about how unreliable it may have been, okay? The first century is not that reliable, yet physicians went around healing people or trying to heal people. And so it was popular as a proverb, it was very proverbial in that culture to say, physician, heal yourself. In other words, take your own medicine and show us that it works. It's like what we would say if someone came to us and said, you know, um, I, I can do this, and this is who I am, and this is what I do, and we might say to them at some point, put up or shut up, right? That's essentially what they're saying to Jesus. Do the things you did in Capernaum here. Jesus, put up or shut up. Don't tell us you're the Messiah and not demonstrate some power. You better show us now. And Jesus responds to this in verse 24. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Hear that? You're too prideful to ever see your need for me. You're going to reject me. And we know that's true, that you come home and, and you start telling your family and friends, listen, Jesus saved me and I, my life is completely changed. Here's what the gospel is. You need to believe too. They're like, shut up. We don't want to hear this from you. We know you. Your life's a mess. Right? No prophet's ever acceptable in his own hometown. Right? Jesus isn't certainly going to be accepted. And so they, they're rejecting him, and Jesus knows it. He's telling them, I know you're going to reject me. And when you reject me, you need to know something. He's going to go on. You need to know something when you reject me. When you reject me, God is rejecting you. See, this is where Jesus' message gets an edge. It's where he starts to meddle. It's where he goes from reading Scripture and sort of preaching a nice message to giving specific application that makes people really uncomfortable. It says this, basically, you think that because you are good religious people who gather every week in synagogue, that you have merited God's favor? You're a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. God's favor is given freely, it isn't earned. You can't earn it, you need grace. And listen, God is not going to be gracious to you. That's what he's telling them. God is not going to be gracious to you because you don't think you need his grace. And his grace is only available in me. You don't think you need me. And he goes on and gives two illustrations. Two illustrations. And here are the illustrations. He wants to show you that God's grace is not going to his own people. Can you imagine Jesus walking to his synagogue, his home church, and standing in front of his home church and saying, I'm the Messiah, the Scripture's being fulfilled right in front of you, and they look at him and say, you're Joseph's son. Come on. And then he looks at him and says this, you know what, because you're rejecting me, God's rejecting you. You want to know something? God is not going to be gracious to you. He's not going to be gracious to you. Instead, I'm going to leave, and God is going to be gracious to your enemies. People you hate. He's going to be gracious to them because they will see their need for me. And he goes on and gives these illustrations. Verse 25. But in truth I tell you, 
there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. So widows are people you take care of, right? You have to demonstrate mercy and grace to widows. Care for them. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came all over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them. In other words, God's prophet was not sent by who? God. He, God did not send Elijah to any of your widows. But he was only sent to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, the only person that Elijah was sent to by God was a Gentile pagan widow. None of your widows. Sent to her, a widow of your enemies. God chose not to be gracious to the widows in Israel. He chose to be gracious to this pagan widow. And I want you to see this story. Look at 1 Kings chapter 17. So just keep your hand there in Luke 4 and look, look over to 1 Kings. If you're not familiar um, with 1 Kings, the, the Old Testament is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you get to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, okay? So 1 Kings and chapter 17. Obviously, if you've gone to 2 Kings, you've gone too far, right? Okay? 1 Kings chapter 17. Let, leave it to me to state the obvious. All right? Verse 8. It's talking about this, the days of Elijah. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Came to Elijah the prophet. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he rose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the, Lord, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And I'm now gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. In other words, we're going to have our last meal. That's all I've got left. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you've said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. In other words, take what you have left and make me a cake. Right? Who is this dude? The widow has to be wondering. Shows up here and wants me to give, wa give him water and then take the last remaining food I have and make him a cake? <clears throat> but he gives her a promise. Verse 14, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. In other words, he will provide food for you until this famine ends. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her whole household, and he and her whole household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. You hear that? This widow... Here's where she's at. I'm desperate. This is our last meal. I have nothing left. Nothing. I've just got this little bit left. He says, listen, take 
what you have left and go make me a cake. And here's what's going to happen. The Lord is going to take care of you. He's going to provide. Every day, just trust him. He'll provide. You will never run out of that flour. You'll always have something to eat. And you know what the widow says? I am so poor, so broke, so destitute, so in need, that all I have left to do is trust the word of the Lord. So I'm going to trust him. And God is gracious to her. And what's Jesus' point? Your widows in Israel, God wasn't gracious to them. They never saw their bankruptcy. So he was not gracious to them. He was gracious to this Gentile widow. And you know what? You're my own neighbors, the people I was raised around, my friends. God's not going to be gracious to you either because I'm going to leave. And God's going to be gracious to people who know they need me. And he goes on and tells another story to drive the point home even more. In verse 27 of, Ch of Luke 4, he says, and there were many, and keep your hands near kings because we're going to go back there. <clears throat> verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. You know what a leper is? They have the disease of leprosy. They're unclean. There was no cure. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman is a general who leads an army against Israel. Naaman is an evil enemy of Israel. And what does God say? I'm going to be gracious to him and not to you. I'm going to cure a leper, that leper, and not you. You hear what Jesus is doing here? Look at 2 Kings chapter 5. So the next book over from 1 Kings, I want you to see this story so it's clear. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. See how he is shown grace while Israel's lepers are rejected. Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So he's wealthy and powerful, but he has leprosy. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. In other words, there's a prophet over here in Samaria, an Israelite Jewish prophet. He'll, he would cure the Lord of his, uh, my Lord, who is this commander, Naaman, of his leprosy. So Naaman went and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. In other words, so you have a king of Syria sending a letter to the king of Israel saying, yeah, I want you to heal the general, take the general of my army essentially, the commander of my army, take him to your prophet and let your prophet heal him. I want you guys to heal general from my army. That's, that's not a request that is gonna, there, anybody's going to be excited about, right? You can hear the response. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 
ten changes of clothes. In other words, he's going to go take some stuff to them. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. In other words, clearly the king wants a fight. He's sending this guy over, cure him of his leprosy, and he knows I can't do that, and I won't cure him of his leprosy, so he wants a battle. He goes on, But when Elisha, this is the prophet, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. In other words, he's like, I expected more of a magic trick. Elijah would come out and sort of wave his hand, right? And then I'd be cured. But that's not what happens with Elisha, excuse me, here. And he's mad. He's like, I don't want to go wash myself in their nasty river, okay? Look at what he says. Verse 12. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. In other words, here is this rich, powerful, arrogant commander of an enemy army. A guy who even insults the waters of Israel, so they're not nearly as good as the waters where I'm from. But his servants say to him, listen, Elisha told you he'd heal you. You need to do it. He'll heal you. And, the, and this commander said, okay, I need to be healed. I'm a leper. I'm clearly sick. I need to be healed. So he went and did it, and God healed him. And what Jesus is saying to the people is this. Jesus is saying to them is this. Listen, hometown, my family and friends, people I grew up around, you don't really think you're sick and need a physician. You don't really think you're blind and need to see. You don't really think you're a captive to sin and need to be set free. You don't really think that you're a leper who needs to be healed. You don't really think that you're a poor, broke widow who needs to be provided for. You think too highly of yourselves. And God is not going to be gracious to you. He's going to be gracious to your enemies because they know they have need of him. Because they'll look to me in faith. In other words, what he's telling Nazareth is this. God will be merciful to whom he will be merciful. And he will show compassion to whom he will show compassion. And God is merciful and gracious to those who recognize their need and you don't see your need for me, so God is rejecting you. 
and he's sending me to a people who know they need me, a people who you hate. See, Jesus crossed over from telling them about the gospel of God's grace for all who, for all who believe to applying it specifically to them, hasn't he? He's now meddling, and he now knows they're going to reject him. And so how do they respond to all this? Look at verse 28 of Luke chapter 4. How do they respond? At first, they're marveling about him until he preaches. Verse 28 of Luke 4, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They moved from marveling at him and his teaching to wanting to murder him. Hear that? They went from marveling at him to wanting to murder him. We wouldn't consider that a very successful sermon, would we? What change that was so drastic? You know what it was? Jesus made specific application to them and they were angry about it. And isn't that what sometimes happens when we specifically apply the gospel to someone? Doesn't, doesn't, don't people get angry about it? I mean, people love Jesus as an ethical man or religious leader, right? Don't they? That Jesus is their homeboy. Some people have shirts, right? They admire him. They admire his teachings. They think him of, of him as some kind of first century Mother Teresa who cared for the downtrodden and promoted peace. What a good guy. But once you specifically apply his message to them, once you tell people that apart from trusting in the Jesus of the Bible, they will be damned, they start getting irritated. Once you start claiming that they are currently deserving God's condemnation for their sins, that they really aren't good people, that God has rejected them apart from Jesus, they become hostile. Once you start pointing out that other religions aren't saving, that all types of sin are damning, that we alone have the true Jesus and the only way to be accepted by God, people can become angry enough to kill. If you don't believe that, just ask Christians who are being martyred all around the world this very day. Now you might not get killed here for saying the same thing because we're not excited about truth claims in any way, shape, or form in America. But it remains true that, you're, that saying you're going to hell is not a popular phrase, right? Claiming we have the exclusive truth in America won't bring your death. But it will bring the rejection of our culture's ultimate put-down, won't it? You know what that is? You're a narrow-minded, prideful, dogmatic bigot. You're too extreme. Who do you think you are? We know you have issues. You're clearly a hypocrite. And it will especially bring this condemnation from your family and friends, won't it? Because a prophet is still not acceptable in his own hometown. So let me take this opportunity, because here's what I want to do. I want to take the opportunity to repeat what Jesus is saying, and I want to give you the chance to, at least in your minds, carry me out of the church and throw me off a cliff. You ready? Okay? Here's what Jesus is saying. If you don't recognize that you are in and of yourself 
in and of yourself, poor, blind, pitiable, and naked, captive, and dead in your sins, an enemy of God upon whom his condemnation rests. If you don't believe that you are in and of yourself destined for hell because God hates you, Psalm 5.5, and your sin, and if you don't know that all your good works add up to the value of a dirty minstrel rag, according to Isaiah, and that all your spirituality and attempts at religion are worthless garbage. If you don't trust that at the same time God loves you and sent his son to die for you, and that Jesus alone saves the Jesus of Christianity, not the false Jesus of popular cults, then God's grace and mercy and favor are not yours. You are not his child. You have no hope. You are damned. Hear that? Is that clear enough? Listen, God loves you. Even though you're his enemy. And I don't know how he simultaneously hates you, Psalm 5-5, and loves you. I have no idea. Just because we can't do it doesn't mean he can't. Okay? But he does. He loves you. And he sent his son in pursuit of you to save you, to reconcile you to himself. See, that's what happens. Jesus is the God-man, is the son of God come to reconcile the world to himself. Well, I don't know if we think about what that means. That means to make peace between himself and the world. Why? What does the cross say to you? The cross tells you at the same time that your sin is so horrific that God's anger and hatred and wrath against it is so real and imminent that he would murder his own son. That's a horrible picture. I don't know how we ever look to the cross and think, what a beautiful picture. The Son of God, the perfect Holy One, being crucified, being put to death. It's a horrific picture. It's an offense. And at the same time, the God who is so angry with your sin that he, he has to show it that way, is at the same time, He loves you so much that He would do that to His Son to save you. Do you hear the picture? The cross announces something horrific about you and something incredibly glorious about God. And we need to understand that we deserve every bit of wrath that Jesus took in our place or we won't be saved. We won't look to Him. God commands you to repent and be saved. That means to turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and look to Jesus. Recognize he's your hope. He's the forgiveness for your sins. He's the declaration of your righteousness. It's through him only, through looking to him only, that you are adopted as a child of God. We need to look to him and we will be saved. But we also have to be warned And I want you to hear because Jesus is warning you. If you reject this offer that God makes to all men everywhere, if you reject this offer, and that was in the gender-inclusive sense, okay? All men everywhere. If you reject this offer, 
this offer of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, then God will leave you in your sin. Hear that? Look at the resolution of the story in verse 30. Because this is one of the saddest things I think I hear in all of the Gospel of Luke. Verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Hear that? Here's the sad thing. We can find no record that Jesus ever returned to Nazareth to preach. No record that he ever returned to Nazareth to preach. We don't know how he got through the crowd. We don't know if it was a miracle or he found some way to walk. We don't know. The point is he, he, he got through and he went away and he never came back. See, this whole congregation resisted Jesus and he left them and he never returned. He, shook, he sh- was shaking the dust off his feet and leaving. He said, I will not throw my pearls to swine. Oh, that that would never happen to this church. That we would be, never be a church that Jesus would shake his feet off, the dust off his feet, and leave. Never to return. Listen, I'm, I'm not sure whether you're someone who has ever said to Jesus, leave me. I don't want you. I want my life, and I want it in my way. I want to humble myself, I don't want to humble myself, excuse me, and recognize you're my only hope. I want to admire you, but I don't want to worship you. I want to use you for something you might offer me, but I don't want to follow you as my Lord. I want to learn something from you that improves my life now, but I don't want to trust in you for my eternal salvation. If you are that person, and I want you to hear this, my greatest fear for you is that he will take you on your word and that he will depart from you and he will do what he told Israel in Amos that he will remove his word from the land and there will be a famine in the land and he will never return to you. So please turn to him now. See, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. You don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow brings. You know you have today, and you know that today is the day of the, of the Lord's favor. Today is the day that Jesus has come to save you. He's good. He'll forgive you. He'll rejoice over you. He'll accept you. You'll be his child. And sovereign grace, I want you to be clear, we need to put away our fear of rejection and failure because both are already certain. It's already going to happen. So just suck it up. Deal with it. There it is. And we need to go out and share Jesus with others. We've got to move forward in telling people about him. We've got to pray for them and tell them about Jesus and invite them to, hear, to church to hear about Jesus if we don't quite know what to say. That's okay still. You know that, right? Because see, as we see in this passage, Jesus saves. He is the one we are telling people about. It's how you respond to him that matters. He is everything for us. We've got to tell people about him because he's all the hope they have too. He's everything we talk about. You don't know what to talk to people about? Just tell them, I love Jesus. I follow him. He is my hope. 
Can you explain him to me? He's God and he's man and he's the Savior and he's the Lord and, and he died for my sins and I don't really know how to explain all that to you, but it's true. I've got some other smart friends who can explain it to you, okay? We'll bring, him to you, we'll bring you to them. That's fine. But point him to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon sums up the fact that, he, by the way, he's an 18th or 19th century, sorry, 19th century British preacher from London or, um, who, who was also um, known for one of, one of the sort of the great revivals in London. And he sums up, he sums up our faith this way. Ready? What we preach. Our faith is a person. The gospel that we have to preach is a person. And go wherever we may, we have something solid and tangible to preach. For our gospel is a person. If you had asked the 12 apostles in their day, what do you believe in? They would not have stopped to go round about with a long sermon. But they would have pointed to their master and they would have said, we believe him. But what are your doctrines? There they stand incarnate. But what is your practice? There stands our practice. He's our example. What then do you believe? Hear the glorious answer of the Apostle Paul. We preach Christ crucified. Our creed, our body of divinity, our whole theology is summed up in the person of Christ Jesus. Let's believe him and tell people about him. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that we would be a people who trust in Christ that we would believe him, that we would tell people about him, that you would be gracious and save people, that we would recognize that we always have need of him, that you'd be gracious to us and that through us you'd extend your grace to others so that many would be saved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.